Pints with Jack, Season 2, Episode 29. After Hours with Dr. David Clark. Hello, and welcome to Pints with Jack. Two weeks ago, I was speaking with Dale Alquist, the president of the Chesterton Society, and today is another interview, another After Hours session, where I'm going to be speaking with Dr. David Clark about his book, C.S. Lewis Goes to Heaven, A Reader's Guide to the Great Divorce. I first came across Dr. Clark's book towards the end of our study of The Great Divorce. You may recall that in one of the later chapters, Lewis's guide, George MacDonald, talks about a man named Sir Archibald. Now, Sir Archibald was a man who was obsessed with survival. But when he arrived in the foothills of heaven, he found that he was at a complete loss, and so he returned to the grey town. And as I was reading that chapter in preparation for our episode, there seemed to be just so many little details mentioned about Sir Archibald that I became convinced that Lewis had to have someone in mind when he wrote about that character. And as I was researching this, I reached out to William O'Flaherty, the chap behind the Essential C.S. Lewis website and the All About Jack podcast. He, in turn, pointed me to Dr. Clark's book, where he lays out a very compelling case that Sir Archibald's real name was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries. Naturally, Matt and I then both bought copies of Dr. Clark's book, and we found it really helpful in preparing for the few remaining episodes we had left of our discussion. So I really wanted to invite Dr. Clark onto the show to discuss both his book and Lewis. Dr. David Clark received his PhD in Biblical Studies with minors in Patristics and Liturgy from the University of Notre Dame. He's taught at Notre Dame, the Southern California College, and Fuller Theological Seminary and Vanguard University. He's an ordained minister with the Assemblies of God, and he's the author of a number of books, including the one we're going to discuss today, C.S. Lewis Goes to Heaven, as well as C.S. Lewis, A Guide to His Theology. Since his retirement, he lives in the St. Louis area and serves as theological advisor to doctoral students at the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary. So, without further ado, Dr. David Clark, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you. Was there anything that I left out in your biography that you think people should really know about you? Well, I'm uh, happily married to my wife, Sylvia, for 50 years now. We just had our 50th anniversary. But Congratulations. Yeah, so living with a theologian that long is quite an accomplishment. <laughs> yes. But she has borne up well, and uh, I sure appreciate it. I'm, sh- I'm sure it's helped in her sanctification. <laughs> So here at Pints with Jack, we have a drink of the week and quote of the week. So for the drink of the week, I am still drinking Lewis's favorite scotch, Vat 69, which I brought back with me from England. And today's quote of the week comes from The Prince or the Poem. The next best thing to being wise oneself is to live in a circle of those who are. And I thought since we were bringing Dr. Clark on the show, that seemed a very appropriate quotation. So if I can't necessarily be wise, I'm going to bring people on the show who definitely are. Cheers. Cheers. So Dr. Clark, could you give us a little bit of background? When were you first introduced to Lewis? While I was at the University of Notre Dame, I was in the choir at a local church, and uh, one of the choir members said that she had a uh, book I might be interested in because it was a series of letters from one devil to another. 
<laughs> and uh, they were trying to get a human being safely to hell. And, of course, it was a fictitious correspondence, but I loved the premise, and I got the book, and uh, when I read Screwtape's correspondence, I thought, wow, this this Lewis guy can really write well. He has seasoned what could be a very somber topic with just the right type of of humor, and it's worth reading more than once. And uh, I was captivated and started looking at other books by him and uh, discovered a whole universe. <laughs> <laughs> and how did Reading Lewis shape your Christian journey and eventual teaching career? Well, since my area of focus was biblical studies, as I went deeper and deeper into uh, not just the scholarship of the Word, but you know, as, as a Christian believer, I found that uh, Lewis was right beside me, his, his understanding of Scripture, farther on the journey than just about anybody else. Uh, and when I finally uh, finished my degree program, I found that uh, the college I had graduated from, Southern California College, which later became Vanguard University, had kept a faculty position open for me, hoping I would return. And and so I did, and um, I went over to the English department faculty, and I said, are, are any of you interested in teaching a course on C.S. Lewis? And, and they were not. And I said, well, I would like to, but... Uh, since he was also a professor of English, language and literature, would you mind if I cross-referenced the course with English as well as theology? And they were gracious enough to agree to that, and uh, nobody in the biblical studies department, which I was in, planned to teach a course on Lewis, and so I was all set up, and students who uh, who wanted extra credit or, you know, um, optional credit in uh, theology or English could uh, could take the course. It turned out to be one of the most popular courses in the in the school, and I give Lewis all the credit. <laughs> Since we looked at his science fiction trilogy, which included trips to Mars and Venus, the course soon became known as the Lewis and Clark Expedition. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> I tried to limit the course so that everybody would have enough time to discuss, but um, it it was so popular that I just gave up. I had I think I must have offered it at least thirty times during my thirty five years of of teaching. Wow! Uh, and I put uh, the great divorce at the end of the course to give students a chance to warm up to Lewis. and they really, really got into that book, and in several cases, Students who had not yet graduated, when I taught the course again, would actually come into the classroom to sit through that discussion again. They were so challenged by the theology of of great divorce. And, of course, that's why eventually I felt this uh, reader's guide would be helpful. The Great Divorce is my favorite of all of Lewis's books. Is it your favorite? Uh, it's right up there. Uh, I was actually, because of my fascination with the book of Genesis and the area known as Eden, I was transported almost there by <laughs> Paralandra. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I read Paralandra, I had an opportunity to read it for the whole book in one day. 
And for about three days, I didn't feel like I was on earth. I was just absorbed that book. But uh, yeah, great divorces. I have a story from uh, Catherine Linsku, who I was able to interview personally before she died. She lived close to me in the city of Orange. But she, of course, had tea with Lewis and his brother, Warney. And he asked her what was his favorite, her favorite book. And she said, The, the Great Divorce. And he said, and that's that's my, one of my favorites too, but that's my Cinderella. In other words, neglected. Yes, which blows my mind because I just think it's fantastic. Uh, did the book take you long to write? Was it based on the course that you taught? Uh, it only took about 35 years. Oh, so that's pretty short then. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I was teaching full-time and uh, had often taught more than... 35 or 40 units in a single year while chairing a department. So there wasn't much time to write. But uh, as I went through the discussion with the students again and again and again, you know, pieces were falling into place. And so when I finally did get a chance, then I had just retired. So out it came. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll go into more detail in a little bit. But what do you think is the bottom line of The Great Divorce? What do you think Lewis wants us to take away from his book? That not even the slightest, he might say, souvenir, not even the slightest sin can remain in heaven. That uh, God wants to free us up, redeem us completely. And I think uh, I went out on a limb and said the, the most important, for me anyway, theological contribution of Lewis is this understanding of God as beyond space and time and that everybody at some point will be resurrected and stand before him and if there's any openness to god god will work with that and and cleanse that soul so that people who through no fault of their own never heard the gospel because they lived you know long before christ or in cultures that were never reached by evangelists Uh, They don't automatically go to hell just because they lived when they lived. My students found a lot of relief in that. Absolutely. It reminds us that we worship a God of justice and mercy. So let's turn to your book. How is it structured? Well, um, because it's so complex, not my book, but C.S. Lewis's book. Well, mine might be too, but it's all his fault. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I noticed that you know people themselves are very complicated, but when Lewis brings these bus passengers before us, he always has them in a situation of dealing with just one, you might say, sin or one problem, even though people are very much more complex than that. I wish I could say that there's only one problem God has to deal with in my life, but <laughs> we won't go into that. Mm-hmm. So I thought it might be useful to the reader to just focus on the people and then the places that have, because they have biblical significance, and then finally the theology that can build, you know, come last and build on what's gone before and and wrap it up together. So uh, I I hope that that doesn't distract as, as unnecessarily overlapping, but rather by isolating each important aspect things can become more clear that Lewis wanted us to understand. And I really like the way you call each of those parts, the sociology, the geography, and then the theology. 
In the introduction, you speak about the different sources which influenced Lewis as he was writing this book. What were they, and how important is it to be familiar with those sources prior to reading The Great Divorce? There's something interesting about that in that Lewis published practically weekly articles that later became screw tape letters. And he said it was all dry, gritty going because Satan only uses the intellect as a tool. So he really felt confined. But the next series he did, which were later collected into The Great Divorce, didn't have that restriction. And so he just, I guess you could say, <laughs> let it all fly out and, and started his name dropping and uh, referencing and quotations and allusions. And oh my gosh, it's just, you know, I thought as a, as a reader's guide, I ought to track down every reference and every quotation and allusion. Well, that took me almost two years. And uh, one of the other professors that I've met said, uh, when you steal from somebody, that's plagiarism. And when you steal from a lot of people, that's scholarship. <laughs> and when you steal from everybody, that's genius. And I think <laughs> Lewis was a genius. <laughs> but obviously, Dante would be right up there. And uh, for people today, that might not be the easiest reading, but it it will pay off. And I think... Uh, Fairy Queen, you know, Milton, and there's just no way to read all the other people he's, he's mentioned, but uh, certainly number one has to be the Bible. And I tried to put four sections of quotations and allusions in there to help people find all those references. Yes, the appendices of your book, I would actually say, are probably my favorite part for that very reason, because as you say, Lewis is name dropping all over the place. And were I better read, I might know who some of these people are. So I would regularly use your book to go and look up to see, well, where does this quotation come from? Who is this person? This thing sounds like something from the Bible, but I'm not quite sure. Yeah, and uh, that's where I was, you know, given my specialty, of, uh, because Lewis is just, uh, forgive me, Jack, <laughs> Lewis is just kind of an academic hobby or, or minor, so... I really have focused on the scriptures as as I was led to by the Holy Spirit. And I was able to come alongside Lewis, and uh, I, I hopefully uh, believe I was able to illuminate where not only where he was quoting from, but give a little background, you know, fill out the meaning a little bit for the benefit of the readers. Yeah, that was, that was really helpful. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about the first part where you talk about the sociology that you find in the book. What are the main themes that you see in The Great Divorce? I think one of the parts that I hope comes through is that Earth, that is our, our lives here pre-resurrection, like the Great Town, is, is in a way not a very definite place. People are in the process of shaping their souls by the grace of God or, or apart from God. And uh, Lewis has this amazing statement that when people look back on their lives, they may conclude, you know what, I was in heaven all along, or I was in hell all along. So many of my students felt that when we die and leave our bodies, that's it. No further change is possible, as if somehow dying finalized our sanctification. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
and and Lewis is not having that. In fact, he would probably say there are people who have already made their final decision, have have crossed that invisible line long before they die. And most of us, when we do die, are maybe even unconscious, certainly not necessarily a sanctifying experience. And when we go then to wherever we go after death, I don't see any reason why we we wouldn't be able, with God's grace, to continue sanctification or continue to reject him. Of course, if I mention the word purgatory, my students freak and run out the door because uh, <laughs> they're, they're Protestants. But I, I very carefully work with them and say, let's not go into all the traditional, maybe Catholic aspects of purgatory, but simply remind ourselves that what we're talking about is a continuation of sanctification. You call it post-death sanctification, if you will. Mm-hmm. I love using Lewis for that purpose, because as a Catholic, I'm okay with purgatory, but I, I, I love giving people the great divorce so they can see a picture of what that might look like and also why it's necessary. Uh-huh. You know, there's a lot of kinds of traditions have grown up of, around that, and I suppose if I needed to raise some money, I could, I could sell indulgences. I think that's been <laughs> tried before, but with some success. But, uh, it works for a short period of time, and then there's, there's, there's always a German monk somewhere that'll kick up a fuss. Yeah, some modern Martin Luther would probably shoot me down again. So, uh. Out of the characters in The Great Divorce, do you have a favorite ghost? And what, what do you think draws you to that particular one? Well, I'm not sure I do, but uh, we haven't mentioned the poet ghost, mm-hmm. because I think... Uh, that gives us a real insight into Lewis himself, this this poet who is fixated on the idea of becoming a famous poet and, uh, in fact, has a sheaf of papers he wants Lewis to read who, who says, I, I, I think I've forgotten my glasses. I, I love that passage. <laughs> and has been to five schools, none of which suited him and his inadequate allowance from his father. And obviously Lewis is talking about his pre-conversion self, and I think he's saying, there, but for the grace of God, go I. And I think he delighted to put himself in the book. You know, if you're going to put the author of the most famous and beloved detective, Sherlock Holmes, in the book, why, why not put yourself <laughs> as a testimony to the goodness of God? Exactly. And I also think that if I encountered a younger version of me, I think I would find myself pretty obnoxious as well. <laughs> yeah, I can save into that. I, I always think of the youth leaders in the Methodist Church that had to put up with me. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Sanctification. Yeah, puns were my specialty. <laughs> One of the things that I loved about your book was that you set about identifying some of these ghosts in more detail than I've seen elsewhere. So we've already mentioned Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, but you also identified the artistic ghost as John Singer Sargent. How did you go about working that out? It's still, uh, I'm I'm trying to be very cautious there, but I was surprised to find that in the, the magisterial collection of Lewis's correspondence by Walter Hooper, that uh, while Lewis frequently mentions musical concerts he's gone to, usually very not very good, and uh, books he's read and, and so on and so forth, he almost never mentions painting. 
And yet, when he talks about this painter, you can tell, you know, he's using the names of various schools, neo-regionalists, which I'd never heard of, and uh, various artists that uh, he's knowledgeable in that area. And yet, he almost never includes that in his letters. And then I found an art critic who just amazed me because he was saying almost exactly what Lewis was saying, that Sargent originally showed a great aptitude and a skill in this treatment of light and helped other people you know, see that through his gift. And then he turned away to something else and lost that. Uh, I don't know that he lost the skill, but he you know, replaced it by someone else something else, portrait painting. and So for Lewis to pick up on that, uh, and uh, like Sir Archibald, he put a lot of detail into the description of that ghost. So I knew it had to be somebody uh, important. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe that's who it was. So that was part one. That was the sociology of the Great Divorce. In part two, you talk about the geography of the Great Divorce. What are the main features that you discuss in this section? I don't know if people are familiar with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, but uh, La- Lazarus is not able to to bring some water to the rich man who who is in a place that seems to have no air conditioning and rather warm. <laughs> speaking slyly here, because there is a great gulf that separates them, and I I, I think Lewis really emphasizes this. What he calls a radiant abyss, as he's you know, as he's on the bus tour, and he opens the window to get some of the wonderful fresh air, and the passengers yell at him to shut that window up. <laughs> but uh, here again, we have the great divorce. There's this huge distance between anything that separates us from God. So the irony of it all is that when Lewis meets his tour guide, McDonald, he eventually finds that uh, what seemed to be a huge, huge abyss and a great town that was stretched on forever is actually smaller than a grain of sand. In other words, it's so unreal. And heaven is reality itself. I hope readers come away with that deep-seated conviction that to turn to God is to turn to reality. And to turn away from God is to take flight into nothingness, into unreality. And Lewis tries to get that across by the places as he describes them. Yeah, your emphasis on the the chasm in your book, it was something that I just kind of skipped over when I was reading The Great Divorce. It was just seemed to, I initially viewed it as just an interlude between the gray town and the foothills of heaven. one other section I really liked in that in that part was we mentioned Botley. Could you tell people about Botley, please? I believe that uh, from his correspondence that Lewis based his description of the gray town, which never has a name, and he never capitalized gray or town. On, upon the he based that on the experience he had when he was going to Oxford and got off the train and went to the wrong side of the train station and and ended up walking away from Oxford because he was not familiar yet with the landscape. And uh, he got farther and farther from Oxford and uh, really was in a a slum called Botley. Then he finally turned around and saw the spires at a distance. And uh, 
he even mentions the mean streets in his correspondence, uh, a phrase that he uses in the in the great divorce. I do wonder how long it took before the residents of Botley realized that Lewis had immortalized <laughs> yeah. their part of Oxfordshire with that description. He probably doesn't sell many books in that uh, in that area. Probably not. No. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I was fascinated by the description of the great town as a as a place where nobody seems to be interested in learning anything or fellowshipping with one another. And I think maybe some uh, of his academic background came out on that. You know, how many people did Lewis meet who simply were not in the least bit interested in learning, particularly about spiritual things? And he wrote in his correspondence that one of the greatest challenges he had was was being able to convince his fellow countrymen that they had a problem of sin that that needed redemption. There just wasn't any sense of conviction there. When Americans ask me about the spiritual state in England, the word that I will typically use is apathy. Uh-huh. It's not that people are necessarily anti-religious. They just typically don't care. And I, and I think that's true of a lot of uh, European countries as well. Uh, so moving on now to part three, the theology of the Great Divorce. What kinds of things do you talk about in that section? Well, in a way, we've been talking about theological issues all along, but uh, Lewis was pretty focused in this book. And I I think he was so shocked by the title of Blake's work, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, that even though he he read it, he said, I'm not sure I understand it. And I thought, I've got to read that. And I, I read it. It's sort of a poetic book. I came away saying, Lewis is right. I don't understand it either. <laughs> yep. So I think, I think Lewis was just working from the title, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, and saying, that is precisely 100% wrong. There can never be a marriage. And uh, there has to be a great divorce. And I think that, in a way, that title might be unfortunate. Who's going to pick up a book about divorce? There's not much of a clue there in that title as to what the book is about. But but that's what his theology is all about. If any human being has any inkling at all or desire to turn to God, God in his grace will receive that person. But receiving that person is going to mean an awful lot. It's going to mean a divorce from every sin that affects our soul and separates us from God. And that sin has to go. But who that wants God would not want to to fellowship with God in an unobstructed manner, to be free from sin, to be totally real. And Lewis has some interesting things to say about being real, because he says when goodness is developing in us, that we become different from one another. We branch out in all of our unique aspects, our unique abilities, our perceptions, our capabilities. You know, if the artist goes, was willing to let go of his reputation, he would become in heaven somebody that would be more skillful than others in depicting aspects of God and light and so on, bringing people closer to God. But Lewis would say, people who insist on holding on to sin become more 
and more of the same. They be, they collapse like black holes into themselves, and they just become hard, cold, and dead inside. Whereas goodness branches out. We don't become clones. We become our differentiated beings. God seems to love variety, and in creation, His glories, His creation, and uh, all of His personality is is displayed in variety and in abundance, and that's what God wants. Lewis speaks about that beautifully in Mere Christianity. He compares Jesus to salt, that adding a little bit of Jesus actually brings out our unique flavors. Um, exactly, exactly. I hadn't really thought about goodness branching out. I really picked up on that, and you hear people say, I want to be like Jesus, but it's not, you know, when we're like Jesus, we'll reflect him in the ways that, that we're unique because God has given, given us those ways. In Mere Christianity, he says Christ has so much personality that it takes all all of us to even just represent a fraction of it. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I just can't, uh, I can't believe, forgive me, Lewis, but as an amateur theologian, Lewis, Lewis had such incredible insights and depth. He read the scriptures faithfully, I think, just about every day, and uh, it really shows. I think one of the big ideas that he talks about in Mere Christianity, which you see demonstrated in The Great Divorce, is the idea of heavenly and hellish creatures, uh, how our choices accumulate, that in every small decision we either turn a little bit more towards God or away from God. And then when we go into eternity, we just see that played out. Right. His sermon in The Weight of Glory saying, you know, everyone is going to live forever. And it's either they're going to be this glorious creature or this hellish creature. Yeah, that's that's a very powerful, powerful thought that uh, in The Weight of Glory, I think that's how The Weight of Glory concludes. I guess you could say we are soul shapers. Mm. (laughs) Every moral decision changes us a little bit. I don't know, I... Uh, so many Christians emphasize justification. I'm forgiven. All right, that takes care of that. And what about sanctification? <laughs> yeah, preparing us for that weight of glory. <laughs> yeah. uh, one question that I, I want to ask you, how do you think somebody should read your book? Should they read The Great Divorce first? Should they splice your book in as they're reading it? What would you suggest? Uh, part of me wants to say read The Great Divorce first because then they'll have a good start but they'll also probably uh, forgive me for saying this they'll realize they need my book (laughs) (laughs) no i agree that before i found your book there were several times that i realized i needed your book it's it's a lot to ask for that somebody sits down with both books and reads a few pages in in lewis and then looks looks at my book and then go back and forth that's a lot to ask, but uh, I, I suppose that would be ideal. But I like the the classroom experience where, where students would, at least they were supposed to, that was their assignment, read the book. And, you know, since I put it last in the, in the course, they had all semester to do that. Even that wasn't long enough for some. <laughs> so when they came to class, they had a lot of questions. They were struggling. And what uh, I have to confession to make after teaching it for like 30 times, I never realized Sir Archibald was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. 
you know when, when you just have a few a few minutes in class you hit the high points and uh, it was only when I started researching for this book that I, I was able to go deep enough and and to spend that much time so that was uh, <laughs> kind of embarrassing and yet I was thrilled to find something that that I don't think anybody else had noticed three people concealed in that book Absolutely. It's a, I've had a very similar experience in doing a podcast where we're going through Lewis's books chapter by chapter. Uh-huh. I've read Mere Christianity and The Great Divorce many times, but it was only when I was reading them slowly and I knew I was going to have to talk about them for 45 minutes each week that I started discovering all of these other layers and things that I'd just never seen before. Yeah, it's, it's very deep. Yeah. Now, if I can just get Oprah Winfrey to mention my book, we'll be... We'll be home free. <laughs> you get a book, and you get a book, and yeah. you get a book. I'll be able to retire. Oh, wait a minute. I'm already retired. Oh, well, I guess it's too late. <laughs> uh, one last question. What one piece of advice would you give somebody who was reading The Great Divorce for the first time? I would say because of the the way landscapes are used, so many things are not meant literally, but yet have a powerful message. Uh, don't treat it as a work of, uh, just a work of fiction and just, well, that was entertaining, but read it for what you can get. And then after maybe uh, half a year or so, come back. Don't be embarrassed to read it three or four times because it, it, takes, <laughs> it takes 30 years. It takes more than one exposure to let it sink in and, and uh, let it change you, and you come back, and you get it deeper and deeper and deeper. Uh, Lewis is one of those writers that's worth reading more than once. When I interviewed Dr. Louis Marcos, we were talking about romanticism and Blake and pretty much everything that led up to The Great Divorce. And he's emphatic that The Great Divorce is his favorite book. And he says, I make a point of reading it every year. Wow. So I'm hoping someday I'll be as smart as him. <laughs> One thing I also meant to ask, actually, the pictures in the book, they were lovely. Where did they come from? When I was um, in uh, California, which is where I'm from, for about nine, I think it was nine years, 2000 to 2009, I was uh, senior editor of the Lamp Post, which was the publication of the Southern California C.S. Lewis Society. And... Uh, I had joined that society long before then, and we had uh, workshops many summers out in St. Andrew's Abbey, the high desert of California. And one of the uh, workshop attendees was was the author uh, of some books and uh, quite a quite an illustrator of children's books, Debbie Camp. And so I was able to contact her and explain what I had in mind, and I think she did a pretty good rendering of the bus. So, you know, this is a, a bus from hopefully the 30s or 40s, and it's drizzling and kind of darkish. And that's, uh, so she tried to capture all that. And uh, if you could see on the cover of the book, there is a man in line way over on the right who has a pipe in his mouth, and that's Lewis. <laughs> and so we discussed it, and that's, that's what we came up with. So I thought she did a pretty good job. It's always interesting when you've read a book and then you see other people's art or illustrations. 
And sometimes you go, oh, yes, that's it exactly. And other times it's like, no, he doesn't look like that. <laughs> that directly conflicts with the picture that I've had in my head. Yeah. But I, I really love them. She tried to do uh, one of George MacDonald. I thought that came out pretty good, too, on page 37. Yeah, that was really lovely. So as we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to talk about or promote? I just want to uh, express my appreciation for uh, your kind words. Uh, uh, I'm afraid to ask you if there's any part of the book you didn't like or uh, that you disagree with. Uh, so we'll just skip over that. But, <laughs> but uh, I really appreciate this opportunity. And uh, I, I just think it's a, it's a wonderful book. And I, apart from mine, I just wish more people knew about The Great Divorce and, and read it. And uh, thank you. Uh, let me thank you personally for your encouraging words. Well, thank you. I, I read your book and I realized that we were definitely on the same page. The entire point of our podcast is just to get more people to read Lewis because we think that there's gold there that would just really help everyone in their life and their spiritual journey, in their conception of God. And so we just want more people to read his books and we talk about them each week to help people uh, break them down and to understand some of the things that are going on here and just to get the conversation started. And I saw exactly the same idea in your book, that you want people to understand the layers that are in this book and the truths that it's trying to communicate. That's that's so true. And uh, those are really, really, I think, in the end, is encouraging. The journey to heaven with Lewis includes humor. He's encouraging. He's uplifting and uh, he's optimistic because Jesus has won. He's conquered death, he's conquered sin, and uh, he's preparing a place for us, and he's preparing us for that place. Absolutely. And I, I do like your description of our journey to heaven with, with Lewis. Uh, yeah, I remember one quotation where he talks about our father presents us with some pleasant inns along the way. And I like to think of each of Lewis's books as one of those refreshing places for me to become revitalized and re-energized to start that journey back up into the high country. Amen. Amen to that, brother. It's been a pleasure talking with you. It's been delightful. Thank you very much for talking with us. And listeners, as always, you can reach out to us through restlesspilgrim.net or pintswithjack.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at pintswithjack. And next week, we'll be back again. We'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers.